Our sermon this morning will come from the book of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Let's hear from the word of the Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I want you to think back to June 2nd, 1953 where Queen Elizabeth is to be crowned the Queen of England at Westminster Abbey in a coronation ceremony that has been meticulously planned for 14 months, just the day after her father's death, King George VI. It would be an ornate ceremony that was full of the British royal tradition. Elizabeth would take an oath to protect the entire empire from the Archbishop of Canterbury, of the Church of England. Now, this circumstance was groundbreaking, not in that a king or a queen of England would promise himself or herself to swear to protect the royalty and the throne and the crown of the empire, but this was unique because it would be the first time of anything of its kind would be televised live on TV. And so there was controversy in this new exciting time where the queen would be crowned queen of England because there was always known that something mysterious, seemingly only knew by God in the crown, would take place during a coronation. Now, some thought that this was magic, where the Lord would bestow his right authority on a queen or a king. Some thought it was fake that they only became royal in power by a sword or conviction or maybe they tricked someone out of it. And some, obviously the queen, saw it as a divine embarkment of the Lord's grace upon her at that time. A spectator far away watching from Paris described what, what mystically happened here where he said that an unfathomable web of mystery and liturgy Blurring so many lines of glory that no clergyman or historian or lawyer could ever untangle any of this majesty. A camera in controversy would show the world what has been withheld from all of our eyes. What happens when a queen or a king is crowned? Well, the answer is they didn't let anyone see it. They decided to protect the sanctity of the most sacred coronation ritual. Elizabeth would be shielded from cameras by a golden canopy. It would rise up from before her so that no commoners, they would twist it by saying, no commoners would ever understand the majesty that she would hold as she would hold the spear and the specter before them. She's anointed, accepting her divine responsibility and all of her subjects are to be left in the dark from her glory. Now to our text. Our text actually shows us something 
more spectacular, but allows us all to see the glory that is happening here. To some, this is peculiar in many ways. To some, it's quite alarming of what the two characters are claiming to do. But to the Christian, this passage is so encouraging to the believer in Christ Jesus because we see the forgiver of our sins, the rescuer of our souls, being coronated from on high to be the Messiah of all. It's a coronation of sorts where the king has arrived and won't just be announced but confirmed by the heavens. We see in passages before this where Jesus was royal in his lineage, was supernatural in his own birth, and was prophetically spoken about by just his mere arrival. If you were with us in the past several weeks, you saw how many things actually spoke about who the Messiah would be, but also how he would come to be. Jesus' coronation, and here's the aim of the text, will show that his coronation was to fulfill all, think of it, all righteousness. Jesus would not only fulfill the Old Testament, but also all of God's righteous requirements by identifying with man in our need to be reconciled to God. And Matthew does this by showing the Son's identification, the Spirit's anointing work, and the Heavenly Father's confirmation. So what we see here is a coronation where glory on high sets Jesus apart like never before. So we see this first where the son would identify uniquely and specifically. We see the son's identification in the first couple of verses of this text. The narrative of this passage, the the baptism of Jesus, it, it strikes us in different ways, but it's really straightforward in how it's being presented. Jesus is finally fully on the stage. You think of how much history is behind him, how much narrative has spoken of him, how many prophets have longed for him to be there, and how many people, even his own mom, was waiting for the king to arrive on the stage. And here he is. But there is significant tension between the man Jesus and the man John the Baptist. Not tension that you might think in a cowboy western movie or between two adversaries, but Jesus shows up and John the Baptist is struck by this and didn't even want Jesus to do what Jesus was going there to do because John was a baptizer. We knew this from two weeks ago, but he was not just baptizing people in general, but his baptism had a uniqueness about it. He was baptizing people who would accompany their own repentance. He was baptizing people who were confessing their own sins, and he was baptizing people who were seeking to flee the very wrath that the Messiah would bring. And here Jesus comes wanting to be baptized. And so don't you know the tension that's in John's body, in his hands, in his mind, in his eyes? Of course, John's response in seeing the Messiah is, I can't baptize you. Are you kidding me? John not wanting to baptize Jesus in many ways was a testimony of not just Jesus' glory, not just Jesus' majesty, not just his messianic approach to how he would do things, but most notably for us, How John saw Jesus, he saw Jesus in particular as a sinless man. He saw him as sinless. When he arrives on the scene, we see this in verse 13. Then John came to Galilee to the Jordan, or to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. 
We see that Jesus came from Galilee, and specifically you would see at the end of chapter 2 that Jesus would not only come from the specific area of Galilee, but also the particular town of Nazareth. We don't know exactly the time of this event or even the specific location. We have a general time, but we don't have the date. We, we have a general location, but we don't have a specific part of the bank of the Jordan River. But Luke would testify in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is now 30. He was 30 years old when he began his ministry. John the Baptist would have been about six months older than Jesus. So John, you could say, is 30 and a half for those of you who still celebrate half birthdays. You're never too old for a half birthday. Jesus came, though, specifically here, not in private form. He came in a public fashion. John chapter 3, verse 21 says, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus also had been baptized. But Jesus did come alone. He didn't show up alone, but he came to this event by himself. He had yet to call his disciples. He had yet to bring family with him. None of the gospels portray him as being with other people. And so we're, here we have a specific task, and it will come, hopefully will become brighter in just a little bit, a specific task where Jesus comes alone to do this very act of all the people who would see we see a contrast not just between Jesus and John the Baptist, but also Jesus and the very Pharisees and Sadducees that we had seen just a couple of passages before. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the baptism, he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now, remember the reminder, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now contrast that between when Jesus arrives by himself on the scene. What does John do? He says, I'm not worthy to baptize you. I need you to baptize me. You're the sinless one. I'm baptizing people for their repentance of their sins. And you can have a whole river, man. Take all day if you need to. Dunk as many times as you want. I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. John says in verse 14, John tried to stop him. Think about it. John tried to stop the very Messiah for what the Messiah was wanting to do. The, the imperative form of this word have prevented him. The, the imperative form of this verb has the connotation of a repetitive, forceful, and energetic desire to stop Jesus from doing what he's doing. Meaning, Don, John's just not saying, hey, stop. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He's saying again and again, stop, stop, stop. What are you doing? Don't do this because of who you are and what this is symbolizing for the people who are doing it. John is saying that Jesus has zero need to confess. He has nothing to repent of because he's the one who people would repent to. He's the Messiah and is sinless in all that he does. John, if anything, needs to be baptized by the Messiah. There was a question that was done by the Barna Research Group several years ago, not that long ago, several years ago, where they asked people, this specific question, more than 2,000 people, this specific question, and the results are alarming. They asked people, when Jesus lived on earth, Jesus was human and committed sins. Yes or no? Amazingly, 56% of millennials, meaning my posse, said, yes, Jesus did commit sins. 
But for those of you who don't like millennials, you're in the bucket too. 52% of all adults, meaning most everyone in this room, 52%, maybe this whole side of the room said, yes, he did commit sins. Friend, I just want to say, if there's any inkling in your mind that Jesus committed sins, then all of this is completely meaningless. You don't need to follow it. You don't need to know it. It doesn't mean anything on your life if Jesus isn't sinless, because the only way you can be saved from yourself is if someone better than you saves you. And if Jesus is sinful, then he's no better than you. But if Jesus is sinless, like no one would disagree in the Bible or anything outside of the text. People who knew him would testify this. People who saw him would testify this. If Jesus is sinless, then it actually ought to change every single thing about your life in a very positive way. It's, it's part indictment and also part joy-filled encouragement on your soul. And John is saying, what are you doing here? That's the tension of the text. Jesus came with a purpose to be ceremonially baptized by the forerunner, but why would a sinless king need to be baptized? Why? This is the question. Brooke and I were on our way to dinner this last week, and I was, I think I was done with the text, but just in case there was anything there that I hadn't seen before, I said, Brooke, why do you think that Jesus needed to be baptized? What's the point of that? And Brooke gave no wrong answers, but here are the wrong answers. There were Gnostics who believed that Jesus was just mere man before his baptism. And and upon his baptism, he received the grace of the Lord to where he was finally divine. That's not scriptural. That's not true. There were people who thought that Jesus' baptism was the initiation of his priestliness. You know, priests in the Old Testament, they would have been uh, brought into their priestly office around the age of 30, ring a bell, and then they would be coronated in a certain ceremony. They thought maybe this is just what Jesus was doing. He was becoming the office of the priest, but that's, that's not the case either. Maybe Jesus was identifying with the Gentiles who he would later save. If you were a Gentile, not a Jew, but you wanted to be a part of the people of God, you would actually go through an initiatory rite of baptism in order to be accepted at the temple. But that's not the case either. That's not how he spoke about the Gentiles. Maybe this was a recognition of John's ministry. Well, I don't know if you've read any part of this or even Luke, but John didn't need any recognition of his ministry. People were following John's ministry. Or maybe, lastly, Jesus was vicariously or victoriously being baptized for the sins of mankind of whom he would later die for. So maybe Jesus needed to be baptized to save people, but that's not the case because anytime baptism is spoken of in the scriptures in relation to Jesus, it's always because Christ died for the ungodly, not Christ was baptized for the ungodly. So why was Jesus baptized? Hear now Brooke's answer to me lovingly right before dinner. My words, not hers, but she got the right answer. Jesus, keep in mind who he was, that he was God's virgin-born, sinless, perfectly obedient son, fully pleasing to the Father who preexisted as divine but laid aside his glory to take upon himself flesh in order to save mankind. Why would this Messiah need to be baptized? Jesus said himself in our text. There's no mystery there. Look at what it says in verse 15. It says that it's fitting and appropriate to be baptized. And Matthew was the only gospel writer who would record this 
this mysterious tension between John the Baptist and Jesus by, by bringing out the hesitancy of John to do this and bringing about the determination of Jesus to do this because Jesus' answer to John's foot dragging is instructive, not only in that it teaches us why Jesus is being baptized, but also gives us a glimpse of Matthew's theological precision for us to glean from. Jesus said, let it be so. John the Baptist said, I can't baptize you. You have to baptize me. And Jesus said, let it be so. In idiom, as if to say, I know it's peculiar in most parts, but for now, it's the right thing to do. And he goes on to say, for it is fitting in this way. Look at verse 15. For it's fitting in this way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, this is a weighty answer containing two very weighty words, fulfill and righteousness, fulfilling God's decree is not something that's new to us, though it is still weighty. We saw all kinds of passages where Jesus was coming to fulfill the very will and the very or the the very will and decree of the Father. But here we are also taken aback by this word righteousness to fulfill not just righteousness but all righteousness. In baptism, Jesus, in fulfilling all righteousness, is identifying Himself with all of God's people. His work is doing what he will call others to do. In righteousness, we mean that in Matthew is portraying to us a whole person's behavior in according to God's will, nature, and coming kingdom. What does a righteous person look like? A righteous person is someone who turns their whole-bodied will towards God's will in aiming to live in accordance of God's will, nature, and coming kingdom. It is placing ourselves as close behind a walking person as possible. It's trying to emulate as perfectly as we can someone in particular. And Jesus is saying a righteous man is someone who perfectly places themselves in the will, nature, and coming kingdom of the Father. Identifying with God's people, not in their glory, but Jesus in being baptized is identifying with God's people in their very sin. So what is Jesus doing here in his baptism? He's not merely setting an example. He's definitely not needing to say that he's repentant or confessing. But what he is doing is this initiatory rite of identifying himself with God's people. And what is the main mark of God's people? Their sinfulness or their fleeing from God. Oftentimes we want to look at the people of God, you know, Israel, the Old Testament, and go, they are God's chosen people but they're actually God's wandering people too, aren't they? Or, or you on your own might go that might recognize that you are loved by God, but you also recognize that it's not because of the work that you do, but him loving you. Well, how does he do that? Jesus has to identify with you. And the way that he identifies with you is not of your wonderful sweetness or character, but by your very sin. Jesus came into the world not to say, I love you no matter what, but to say, I need to save you because of what's coming. He doesn't disregard God's glory or your humanity. He came to seek and die for sinners. Jesus came into the world to identify with men, and to identify with men means that he must identify with their sin. He could not purchase righteousness for mankind if he didn't identify with mankind's sin. You think of what a sacrifice would mean. That sacrifice has to be very close to what it's being sacrificed for. Jesus, in his full divinity and humanity, stooped to such a level to identify with man's sinfulness 
so that he could later raise man up to where the father would see man as his son's own. Jesus is fulfilling his role as the obedient son by living righteously, submitting to God's perfect will wholeheartedly. And Jesus is saying to John, you and I need to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. He who had no sin took his place among those who had no righteousness. He submitted to a baptism for sinners, and the Savior took his place among the sinners of the world. In baptism, the Messiah proves to be the perfect, obedient son, even at the cost of us being the sinful people that we are. There is no other way to fulfill all righteousness but to identify with sinners. So why did Jesus need to be baptized, or why did Jesus choose to be baptized? To fulfill the Father's will. He who became sin would save sinners. Jesus is more here than just a model. We don't simply get baptized because he did, but rather we are baptized into him, meaning into his identity because he placed himself at the identity of us. And from that, he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. We are baptized into his identity. That's a great explanation of what Christian baptism is. It's saying, I'm not myself anymore. I'm actually being baptized into the Messiah, and the Messiah baptizes us, his people, with the Holy Spirit. Only the, think of this, the irony of this, only the future glorious sacrificial lamb would have a coronation, don't think too far from this throne room, would have a coronation of wholehearted obedience. What does a normal coronation have? I would love to be coronated king, right? Because it's me in front of everyone and saying, I'm in charge. I get to do whatever I want. And what does Jesus do at his coronation? Lives perfectly in obedience to the Father's will. And then later he would say, follow me. So we see the Son's identification in this text, but we also see the Spirit's anointing work in this text going on in a couple of verses later. There is great insight into baptismal practice here when we see that Jesus consented to, or that John consented for Jesus to be baptized at the end of verse 15. And when Jesus was baptized, it starts off in verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Now, John and John's disciples and the disciples of Jesus, their baptism would symbolize a, a purification of what's happening in the soul, a cleansing, a a whole heart transformation of what has happened. The Christian's baptism represents our identification with Christ's death and resurrection, not in part, but in whole. And the text here says that Jesus was baptized and went up from the water. Now, I'm going to stick on this because amongst a bunch of Anabaptists or Baptists, all of us are Baptists because we practice biblical baptism. So I just want to stick on this in case there are any questions in the room. I cannot imagine plainly reading this text in any form it's presented with any other translation and not see Jesus being immersed here. And briefly, that's why we practice baptisms the way we do. We, we practice playing out the, what the very word means here, where baptized means to dip or to sink. The changing of this happened about a thousand years ago where they started doing things in Latin and they took off part of what this word means. It's nothing less than to dip or to sink. Jesus wouldn't have walked into the water ankle deep and said, "Ah, that's pretty good. 
You wouldn't baptize someone in that way. John wouldn't stand in the Jordan, as it says, and baptize people not to go fully immerse. In fact, the very word means that they would dip not just a little bit, but there's no other way to dip than to dip all the way. John says he'll baptize with water, but here I think there's more clarity on this and what baptism means. I know this is a sidestep and it's not the main point of the sermon, but don't be fooled. Don't be shorted by someone who wants to baptize you halfway. Go all in, friend. Here's what we mean. The Messiah, what has he come to do? He's come to baptize, not with water, John says, but the one who comes, Christ Jesus, will baptize with fire. Well, is that fire in a total fire or a partial burn? Do you want some of the Spirit or do you want all of the Spirit? When Noah survived the flood, was the whole earth consumed with water in the way that we expect the whole earth to be purified with fire in 2 Peter? When Jesus said that he, or when God said that he created everything from nothing, was that some things that then turned into many things? Or here we see that John was baptizing with water and Jesus would baptize later with fire. Anyway, the Messiah is baptized in verse 16, and John or Matthew doesn't get a great account of what happened here, just that he was baptized and then he emerged from the water. But then look at what it says right after that. It says, behold, or a demonstrative participle meaning, look, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to the rest, coming to rest on him. Luke, to this point in chapter 3, when Jesus also had been baptized, it says that he was praying and the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, taking, taking the appearance of what man could see as like a dove. Cases of heavens being open for the glory of the Lord to show is something that is done again and again in the scriptures. We see most notably in Ezekiel where the heavens were opened and things that, that he could only describe as using words like like and as and somewhat we see creatures and chariots and wheels and eyes and heads. The glory of the Lord as the heavens opened up was shining on the earth or in Stephen in Acts 7 when he was being stoned by confessing that Christ was the very Lord of the universe. It says, the heavens opened up and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. And in that same way, using that same language, our scriptures here say that the heavens opened before John and he saw the very Spirit of God as promised in John chapter 1 verse 33. Turn over to John chapter 1 verse 33. It's just a couple of books over and right at the beginning of the book. John chapter 1, verse 33, just so your eyes are on it. Up in verse 32, it said, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John saw that John saw and gave an account that Jesus wasn't just ascended or descended upon by the Spirit, but that the Spirit remained here. Now, in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon those whom God would deem fit to enable those people to accomplish certain God-glorious and God-given tasks. Shown here, God gave the Spirit to rest on Jesus. Isaiah predicted it wouldn't only rest on him, though, but that the Messiah would be filled with the Spirit. We see the effects 
of Jesus being filled with the Spirit in Isaiah chapter 11. You don't have to turn there. I'll do it for you. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And we see what the work of the Spirit will do when resting upon the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So we see here the very work of what is happening. Not just that is a sweet sign that you might artistically express with painting a dove resting upon the Messiah's shoulders, but this is a confirming sign shown by a dove. And it's the only sign of its kind in Scripture. No other other way is a dove used other than this. Uniquely, another case of Jesus' ministry is one of identification, but also we see that a dove was often used as a sacrifice by those who were too poor to have a rich man's lamb. Think about that, the the picturesque view, the symbolism there of, of the Spirit of God resting upon Jesus and remaining upon him, but but for man's eyes it looks like a dove. And the symbolism there of what a dove would be used by those who were too poor to line up with others around him. It's rich, isn't it? Now, something to note here is that Jesus was never not divine. This isn't when Jesus became divine. He is divine. Jesus took to himself flesh. The the incarnate, preexistent Son of God took to himself flesh. This is why R.C. Sproul helpfully uh, corrects us when we are tempted to say that Jesus is fully God or fully man R.C. Sproul would say, he's not fully God, he's truly God. Don't think of God as if he's like a cup that needs to be filled up and empty whenever we might call upon him. Jesus is not fully God or fully man. He is truly God and truly man, something that in its opposition would only be known as false or not true, but he is very divine and very man. In his deity, he needed nothing, but in his humanity here. Here, he is being anointed for service and given strength for the task ahead. We see the the humanness of Jesus portrayed to us in this passage for all the things that he would go on to do, all the things that he needed the Spirit for, the things that you and I might pray to the Lord to help us and guide us and strengthen us. There might have even been times this past week where you recognize, I can't do this on my own. Lord, I need you. And here we have, the gracious love of the Spirit of God being poured out on Jesus for the fight ahead. It would not be too ironic for what would happen in just one passage later where Jesus, in one of his first acts of ministry, would be tempted in full force by the very person of Satan himself. The uniqueness of this picture is the empowerment of the Messiah and also a sign of his confirmation. Matthew shows God's empowerment and blessing of the Son by the Spirit descending upon him. So we see in this text the Son's identification with man, the Spirit's anointing of the Son for power, and the Father's, lastly, the Father's confirmation. Third, we see the majesty of Jesus' baptism by the Father's confirmation. You think of all that would happen in a coronation. How sweet would it be for the Queen in 1953 if the very Father of Heaven had shouted out for everyone to hear. That didn't happen then, but it did happen here. Think of the last verse in this text, one that could be meditated on so long in our lives. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son 
with whom I am well pleased. The baptism of our Lord Jesus is seen with circumstances of peculiar solemnness and seriousness in all of its fashion. There is no baptism like this one. The text shows here the very presence of all three persons of the blessed Trinity. God the Son, manifest in flesh, is baptized. God the Spirit descends like a dove and rests upon Him. God the Father speaks from heaven with a voice. In a word, we have the manifested presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for us to receive and see this coronation of a king. And here, we are told that a voice from heaven at our Lord's baptism spoke of. The buildup of this passage isn't one of epic, ascending sound, but is rather heard with peculiar solemnness and seriousness. Our scriptures, in our scriptures, there is no voice like this except in one other place where the law was given on Sinai to God's people. Think about it. Those two high mountains, right? What was spoken of to Moses and here what is spoken of for all to see. One was the introduction of the law and here the very presentation and confirmation of the gospel. The Father's words are so striking. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. These words are declaring that Jesus is the divine, sealed, and appointed Savior from all eternity to carry out the very work of redemption. He's no mere man. It's no mere accident. This isn't just two cousins hanging out in a river trying to cause trouble, but rather it's being confirmed by the Father himself. These words are declaring, and the Father proclaims that he accepts Jesus as the mediator between God and man. Now think just a few verses ahead what Jesus was doing. Jesus was identifying with a sinful people, and then here the Father is saying, this is my Son, this is my Savior, this is my Redeemer in whom I am well pleased. When we are baptized into Jesus, Friend, when you place your trust into Jesus, that same very voice that came from heaven is the same one that accepts you because you have been placing yourself in the trust of Jesus himself. The Father proclaims that he is satisfied with Jesus as the propitiation, the substitute, the ransom payer for the lost. In Jesus, identifying with sinners of the world, in their sin, the Father calls out that Jesus is the head of the redeemed people. In Jesus, the Father sees his holy law, it says, magnified and made honorable in our scriptures. Through him, he can be just, and yet the justifier of the ungodly. So don't think that this passage is just Merely the Trinity showing itself, though it very much is. When people say the Trinity is not in the Bible, you say, let me talk to you from Matthew 3. But it's not just us seeing the three persons of one essence, the Trinity showcasing itself. But but keep in mind who Jesus came to save. Keep in mind who Jesus came to seek. And friend, keep in mind if you feel that you are far off from the cross and far off from God's love, know very well that when you place yourself into the trust of Jesus and give your whole life over to him, it will be the Father who says to you that he's very well pleased. 
Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my children in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. At Jesus' coronation, he is being presented as the chosen servant of the Lord who brings pleasure to God and salvation to you. So in conclusion, may we wonder and ponder these words well and understand their meaning for, for us. They are rich food for thought. They are full of peace and, and comfort and consolation for you. For all who have fled for refuge to the Lord Jesus Christ and have committed your soul to him for salvation. Because of this, we can rejoice in the thought and in the reality that though in ourselves we are sinful, in God's sight we are counted righteous. In this we see that we are all called to obey like Jesus did. And we are given confidence in his sending the Spirit and also in Christ's work for us. The Father regards us as members as his beloved Son. And we are baptized into him. And the Father sees us with no spot. And by the Son's justifying work on the cross, the Father sees us and reminds himself of his Son. And he says that he is well pleased. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this sweet testimony of your son's work. We thank you for this powerful anointing by your spirit. We thank you, our Father, for the words that you spoke over Jesus and that echo into our own hearts today, that you were pleased in him. There are so many phrases and songs and hymns and scriptures that we could sing out, and may it be so for the rest of our lives, that we glory in our Redeemer, in whom you say, you are well pleased. We pray that you would transform our lives and shape us into his likeness for the betterment and glory and building up of your kingdom. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus.